This is Byron Sanders, President and CEO of Big Thought. And this is Damani Daniel, Chief Imaginator at The Event Nerd. Welcome to Casually Creative, conversations about everyday creativity and nerdiness. Welcome back to Casually Creative, everybody. Um, this is your man, Byron Sanders, president and CEO of Big Thought. And we got Jay for Juniper, Damani Daniel, chief imaginator at the Event Nerd. Brittany, his name is not Juniper. He says that, but it's actually uh, Josiah. Josiah. <laughs> we said this, it's Jephthah. Yeah, you're right. But listen, oh, okay. we're, we're really excited today because uh, you have a, 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 a hitter. We got a hitter here today, fam. We got yes. somebody who's bringing hot fire, spicy, dripping, Her- Harissa, Harissa. <laughs> um, and and I and I'll, I'll be honest, we got we got connected. I was just telling her just a second ago, we got connected through another dope, um, uh, black magical woman in um, Mercedes Fulbright, who has actually been a guest on this show mm-hmm. before. Yeah, one of our um, guests. And it was one of those things when I was asking for, um, you know, uh, our guest number today, I was like, hey, I did feel kind of like, uh, you know, 11th grade self where I go up. I'm like, yo, um, your, your girl is like real cool, but I'm nervous to just like Facebook her. So can you, can you just, can, you, can, you, can, you, can I get her number? And then I call her and then, and she's like, no, chill out. It's fine here. And then I called and she's so humble show accessible uh because just uh was it yesterday she was on um one of the premier institutions here in dallas she did a talk to uh, a few hundred people um you know just casually dropping dropping heat there and she is joining us today on casually creative everybody we have with us Brittany k barnett welcome to the show Brittany. what's up what's up um so this is uh this is exciting because as we know, one of my favorite things to talk about is social justice. And one of the things that we are Wait. shut your mouth, Damani. Wait, <laughs> what? That is not indicated anywhere in any of the context of any things we've talked about ever. Damani, I, I don't what? I, it literally comes up in every conversation. I we am talk shocked. about institutional racism. We talk about social justice. We talk about policy. I'm a, you know, oh, your joke. Oh, I see. I see. This was a sarcastic statement. Wait, you thought I was being serious? I'm going to fight you. I'm going to fight so <laughs> hard. So listen, uh, as Damani, as Damani just um, um, uh, shaded me on, I talk about it a lot, right? And it's because it's critical. If we want to build this a better true. society, there's no way we could do that without talking about institutional practices how they need to change, how they need to change, how we need to dismantle racism, white supremacy, patriarchy, all the things. And uh, one of the preeminent voices actually in this space, in the, in the country, and dare I say the planet, maybe Damani Solar System? I mean, there could also be some other, pl- I, I was having a conversation with the ambassador from um, the planet Bastali, yeah. and uh, she was also saying the same thing, that Brittany is one of the preeminent people for them as well. <laughs> Pal, so we have yeah. Brittany here today. Yeah. I'm just gonna read. Just I'm not gonna I'm not gonna spend a ton of time on her bio because I know you don't really want me to spend a ton of time in the bio. But 
there's some there's some things I need to share. Um, um, first of all, she's a graduate of a place where I have also known the education, uh, SMU. We got a fellow Mustang on here, uh, but that is, is only a now, man. It's 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 two fingers up, okay, and then you you slightly crook them a little bit so they're like pony. <laughs> so. Um, she is a prolific writer and speaker. One of the things that just dropped here recently was A Knock at Midnight, which mm-hmm. is a beautiful tome that we're going to get into uh, that talks about her story um, as a uh, attorney doing God's work, uh, who is challenging the system itself um, and through the stories and, and lifting up and creating space for the uh, lives who are being affected by our criminal justice system in, in this uh, complex. And uh, she started other things like 16 Capital Partners. Um, and tell me if I'm pronouncing this right, because I've only read it. Melina Rain? Yes. Is that right? Okay. Yeah. Social Good enterprises job. that are shifting paradigms, that are really changing things in this world. Also, she does a little thing like freeing people who are on death row. Um I don't know, maybe she might have done 17 um, in a very short period of time. And when I say short period of time, everything is in a short period of time because she's not even 40, y'all. And I I can say that with utter confidence because you would be able to look it up anyway uh, on the Internet. (laughs) Bottom line is there's so much to to Britney's story. She is brilliant. She is uh, powerful and she's got a story to tell. Again, we're so grateful that you're here with us today, Brittany. What's good? Thank y'all so much for having me and for that bomb intro. Dope, dope. It's recording, so you can play it anytime you want. You make it a ringtone. You, <laughs> you can actually just walk around with it like like on an MP3 player because that's the thing that people still have. That's right. Um, and you can just hit play and then just you walk can screw around. it. You can As chop you walk it. into a room. It's true. Yeah, yeah, I can chop and screw it for sure. For sure. That's right. That's right. So um, let's hear a little bit about the origin story. Brittany, like what's where, where are you from? What you what you where'd all this come from? Where where's this where's this all this goodness boil up from? I am a true southern black girl. I'm from rural East Texas. Come on now. It's a town called Bogota. Bogota. But go to Texas with population 1,200. All right. So put it in a little bit more context. It's between Paris, Texas, Clarksville, Texas, and Mount Pleasant, Texas. So it's like right in the center of that very small town. Definitely a country girl at heart. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Bogota. Got it. Bogota. That's, um, that's, so my people are East Texas as well. We we from we more southeast, so San Augustine, Nacogdoches. Okay. Uh, yeah, we getting close to we getting close to Louisiana right there. San Augustine. Well, yeah. Augustine, that's about as close to Louisiana, Louisiana as you, as you get. get. Yeah. That's right there. Yeah, that's right. So country south, um, and it's south with the F in it. Always. Um, always. So you 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 start off in East Texas. How you make your way to uh to to Dallas SMU? What what's going on? How that what does that journey look like? So in high school, I transferred to Commerce High School. Lived yep. with my grandparents, and from there, I graduated high school a year early. 
Mm-hmm. And, you so, know, in Texas, if you're in the top 10% of your class, you can get an automatic admission to any university. Mm-hmm. But I was so young, I wanted to go to University of Texas. Yeah. But I was so young, you know, from the country, as far from home, I decided to go to University of Texas at Arlington to start yeah. with. Yeah. Okay. And so All that's right. how I ended up in Dallas. Okay. Now, why why did you come here to live with you? Uh, you said you came to live with your grandmother, with your grandparents. Yeah, I lived yeah. with my grandparents in high school. So growing up in rural East Texas, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just a childhood upbringing. I wouldn't trade for the world. Mm-hmm. I had a very normal upbringing on the outside. You know what I'm saying? Like. Mm-hmm. My mom married my stepdad. She was a nurse. He worked at the local coal mine. Yeah. Both had what were considered like top jobs in the area. He coached my basketball team, my softball team. You know, we were very involved. But there was just this hidden demon that no one really knew about. And it was that my mom was suffering from a drug addiction. Mm. And so she would be what you would call functioning. Mm. for a while and then her drug addiction started to really spiral out of control to the point where it was just best for me to and my sister to live with with our grandparents and so we moved about an hour away and uh that's how i ended up in commerce talk to me about that decision was that was that something that you feel like you had agency in or was it one that was made for you I had full agency in it. So much so, Byron, that now looking back, especially writing the book, it was a two-year process to write this book. Deeply therapeutic by Mm. all means. I had full agency in that decision and so much so that there was a lot of guilt that I carried Mm. for leaving my mom Mm. at her worst. Mm. And you know, when we're young like that and our parents are dealing with this catastrophe that's in our, we feel is in our little arm's reach as a child. Yeah. We take on these responsibilities and burdens that we shouldn't, you know, that was not my issue. Yeah. That was not my problem. And that was nothing I could have stayed to fix. Mm, that's good. That's real. You know, which was, it's it's so interesting. We talk about how this happens oftentimes with young people who experience trauma growing up, right? Um, we, we, on this show, we talk a lot about ACEs research and field of study, adverse childhood experiences. One of them being, you know, had a parent who suffered from either a drug addiction or incarceration or, or maybe even witnessed maternal abuse. In my instance, that, that was, that's how I grew up, right? That was kind of the thing. But I very similarly had this weight, this burden, which is completely irrational, right? For, for, for a six year old to be like, dang, I should, I should fix my family. Right. That, that it's not even really a thing, but that's a very real weight burden that manifests in a child's life. Um, oftentimes. And you said you're you're an older sister, correct? Yeah, I have a younger sister. We're about 18 months apart. Mm-hmm. And so when I first left to move with my grandparents from my own decision, 
I left her too mm. with my mom at my mom's worst. And so there was a lot of guilt, you know, that I carried unrealistically, you know, but when you're 13, mm-hmm. your, your mind can't process the fact that you can't save her. Mm-hmm. How'd you deal with that? Or do you feel like you still are? I feel like writing the book really helped me deal with that and to realize that it, that was not my burden. That was not my work. How did that, <clears throat> do you feel like that um, you graduated from school early? Was that a response to that trauma or was it, was it already the path that you were on or was it a, or was it a, okay, I, I need to get out of this whole situation as quickly as possible. It was a mixture of it all. I'd always been, you know, very ambitious, top of the class, you know, and then it became a mixture of, I I want to get through this high school thing as quickly as possible, yeah. you know, to get away and, and to start to start to do my own thing. You know, growing up in, in East Texas and in the South, especially as an 80s baby, when I look at like my colleagues from the city, mm-hmm. even though there's this connotation of slowness mm-hmm. from the rural South, like I think I grew up a lot faster. I matured a lot faster than my, my city born and raised friends. I just yeah. did. I don't know if it was because of the situation with my mom or I think it was mixed with that and just our rural upbringing. Like I was literally driving a car at 12. Yep. That's right. Because yeah. that's how we grew up. Yeah. You know, I was yeah. cooking, you know, I, I just shouldered a lot of responsibility from my mom's addiction, but also just things that you do growing up in the country. Yeah. There is this interesting duality, right? Because, uh, so I'm from Brooklyn, born and raised. Uh, so I'm the quintessential city boy, right? Uh, my wife is from a small town in West Texas uh, with a population of now has a population of 8,000, like now, uh, but she grew up there. And so whenever we go out to visit, we ended up living, <clears throat> we ended up living for, out there for like four and a half months during COVID. And while we were there, yeah, you start to notice how much more the children take on. Like my son, by the time we left, by the time we came back to Dallas, was driving, he's seven, by the way, <laughs> was driving the gator around the farm to go check on the cows with my mom. My mom came out for a visit and he was like, Nana, you want to go check on the cows? And she's like, okay. So he hops up in the driver's seat and and it's farmland, right? Um, But there is this reality of like, he was fully, he had full agency and he took it very seriously. Yeah. Uh, And he was looking out for his cows. He was looking out for his (laughs) Nana. You know, it is so interesting to see how contrary to what many people might think country life actually does prepare you because it forces you to have responsibilities that you would not otherwise have. Bryce has I completely power. agree. Yeah. No, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I, I completely agree. I think it really reinforces a lot of what you just mentioned, you know, growing up and I mean, I, the town had 1200 people yeah. in it. So yeah, I could drive. I was 12 driving across the street you know, to the grocery right. store yeah. or something like that, you know, no pedestrians, or basketball right? game. So my mom would just leave the key under the seat, you know, it, uh-huh. it, it, it was just a difference, you know, and I just, yeah. one of the things that's just so important to me and, and everything that I do in particular 
as I was writing the book is just, I just wanted the South to be felt mm. so deeply, so deeply. So getting to that, 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 that question, you know, there's a, there's a word that you use and, and you, uh, when you're, you're writing about yourself and kind of laying things out for us, um, you know, proximity, right. Proximate. And, you, we look at the work that you're doing today, which we'll get to in just a second. But you said that the thing that brought you proximate to where you are, that led you to where you are, was um, the incarceration of your mother and how that um, almost, uh, you know, ordained a pathway that I'm going to do something about this at some point in my life. So talk a little bit about that. Uh, what how did that how did that affect you? When did you how did that process um um, into some of the choices that clearly you had already taken agency over your life um, um, along the way. How did that affect your decisions? Yeah. So my mom's drug addiction continued to spiral mm-hmm. out of control to the point where she went to prison when I was 21. My sister was 20 and it was devastating Byron. I mean, no matter the trials and tribulations that we went through, mm-hmm. you know, one of my favorite Nikki Giovanni quotes that I use in the book is people may look at my childhood and think how hard it was and not realize that all the while I was quite happy. Mm-hmm. And even with the trials and tribulations of my with my mom, that's, that's my mama. Yeah. 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 That's my mama. And it's it's a primal wound when your mama goes to prison, hmm. especially because I knew she did not deserve to be there. My mama needed treatment. Yeah. yeah. She didn't need prison, you know, and that proximity to suffering of a group of people who were often taught to stereotype and ignore people who are in prison and now this group included my mama it truly gave me a heightened sense of compassion and empathy that I I never knew that I had and it was quite the experience for us my mom served two and a half years she got sober she's been sober for 12 years now I'm incredibly proud of her she works as a drug recovery nurse here in Dallas at Homeward Bound she's just doing amazing But I will say that my mom didn't get sober because of prison. She got sober in spite of prison. Wow. So she found something deep within herself to to make that happen. And just that proximity of seeing that, the proximity of seeing firsthand the dehumanization that comes from incarceration, Mm -hmm. from locking people in human cages and that proximity is so crucial as my one of my heroes brian stevenson talks about a lot just how powerful proximity is you know and and so being up close and personal with the suffering that comes from incarceration and how incarceration devastates entire families and communities. And I've seen that firsthand. Mm -hmm. It was a foundational experience for me that was necessary. So, you know, as we, as we take that and process that you're sitting with it, 
you get this new deep level of empathy. Had you already decided that you wanted to go to law school or was that, or was that the thing that drove you there? It wasn't the thing that drove me there because I had always wanted to be a lawyer as cliche as it may sound, but Mm. growing up in rural East Texas, I didn't know any lawyers. The closest lawyer I knew that looked like me was Claire Huxtable on the I was about show. to say, it's, it's, it's everybody's For real. mama, auntie, it's Claire. Come on now. It's Claire. So as the, I always wanted to be a lawyer, but like the older I got, the more it seemed that becoming a lawyer was just out of my reach. It was out of my league. And when I look back, it was just because of lack of representation. And representation is just so important. And so my mom going to prison rekindled that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went to UTA. I got a bachelor's and master's in accounting and became a CPA. I became a certified public accountant and worked for PricewaterhouseCoopers. And mm-hmm. one of my mentors along the way, Ken Chukaoba, we worked together at Chase Bank in, in college. And as I was studying for the CPA exam, he had already taken it and was working. And I remember going to him to borrow his books, his study guide. My mom was in prison at the time. Mm-hmm. And I said, hey, Ken, you know, I'm thinking about going to law school. Really just to see what he would say. Uh-huh. And he said, oh, Brittany, you should go. You succeed at everything you do. I'm starting SMU in the fall for law okay. school. So I was like, oh, Ken, you know, I'm so happy for you. That's amazing. And I left him. I was happy for him for sure, but I remember thinking, wait a minute, <laughs> if he can go to law school, I know I can go to law school. That's right. <laughs> so that like changes. No shade, but, so but, but this is what it is. You know? This is what it is. Like, it was that representation. I could see, touch and feel him. Yeah. yeah. And so it was I, I, from there. I was like, okay, I'm going to finish the CPA exam mm-hmm. and, and I'm going to go to law school. And that was the whole purpose of that was I was a CPA. I was doing corporate stuff. I loved the business side of things and I wanted to blaze the trail as a corporate lawyer. So okay. on that, so in your mind at that point, right? Cause as we're progressing, you're doing something very different from corporate law right now, but what aspect of corporate law were you thinking about? Like, were you planning on heading into? I was wanting to head into mergers and acquisitions. Okay. And get money, I knew, right? Get money. All, all of that, yeah. you know, and then I, I enjoyed the art of the deal. You know, mm. I was analytical. I'm already a CPA yeah. working at PricewaterhouseCoopers auditing big companies. So I'm able to get intimate with the inner workings of these companies and knowing that I could take that background and leverage it mm. as a corporate lawyer, mergers and acquisitions. I wanted to do that. I wanted to have my thumb on that pulse of global power okay. as a corporate lawyer, as a black woman blazing the trail, you know, in these uncharted spaces. So I, I wanted that. Yeah. So let me ask this. What, um, what about, you talk about being from rural East Texas, right? What was the through line through your childhood that drove you to want to be kind of the best, right? 
the best in school to graduate early, uh, CPA. I mean, I know I'm studying for my CPA exam right now, but while I'm studying for my CPA exam, I've also decided that I'm pretty much right thereafter going to go and become a lawyer. Like, what about your childhood or the place that you grew up drew you to always want to kind of strive to be at the top? You know, I think it was my family, my dad and my grandfather. And my parents were very young when I was born. My dad was 16. My mom was 18. You know, they were very young. My dad struggled with addiction early on in his life. One of the things that's funny when I look back at my parents and addiction was how young they were. Like, I look back and like, okay, I'm 10, but my mom isn't even 30. Yeah. 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 You know, and like my dad's like 25, you know? And so, but he always had poured and molded into me that I could do anything. Yeah. And he used to write me poems. I was a teenager and he would write me poems and I would get a little annoyed at them because as a teenager, you don't want to read poems from your dad, you know? (laughs) And he was just pouring his heart out to me in these poems and telling me that, you know, one of the things he would say is that whatever in life you want, put and keep Jesus first and go and get it. Mm -hmm. Or he would say, you know, may God enhance all positive abilities in my lovely daughter. May she never forget the lessons her daddy has taught her. Let her know her dad will always love her and care. Her daddy will always be there, if not in the flesh, internally in spirit. Mm. And I kept those poems. I still have these poems. And I talked to my dad a few years ago, and he's doing amazing. He's a very successful cement contractor now. And we talked about those poems, and he told me that he wrote them because he wanted me to have this map because there was so much destruction and death around him mm. deep in his addiction. And mm. he had friends overdosing friends dying. He's in his twenties, you know, and he didn't think he would make it. Mm. And so he was leaving me these poems in the event he didn't make it. And now when I look at the poems at 36, I see all through the writings, mm-hmm. his struggle and wanting to make sure his daughter had the gems and his dad, my grandpa, who I call daddy as well was a cement contractor. And so he helped steer and guide my dad. And he used to say things like, son, if you can pour a sidewalk, you can pour a stadium, hmm. you know, or, or hmm. he would That's tell good. me, That's good. yeah. Or I would talk to him and he'd say, one time I was uh, like in the fourth grade and I got all A's and my friend had got all A's on her report card and, she got money for it, you know, and I was walking. They, my grandparents had a pond in front of their house and I would go fishing with my grandpa a lot. And I said, Daddy, you know, I got all A's. What are you going to give me? And he said, I'm not going to give you anything. And my feelings were so hurt because my grandparents hardly told me no. Right. Uh-huh. And he said, I'm not going to give you anything because that's what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I feel that right, wrong, or indifferent, that was like the sense of responsibility that I carry with me, like that this is what I'm supposed to do. So going back mm. to your question about 
what drove me it, it's just what I was supposed to do mm. and I would talk to my grandpa you know one of his, his things he would say all the time I would just vent to him about my troubles I'm like 14 or 15 and we're at mm-hmm. the pond and he would always bait the hook for me because he knew I didn't want to get my hands yeah. dirty. Yeah, and he listened to me. On. Yeah, and he'd hear yeah. me out. And I'm venting and he'd say, it ain't nothing but a step for a step of big girl. Come on now. keep on stepping. And so I just kept on stepping. I keep on stepping. It sounded like your, your daddy normalized greatness in your life. Yeah, and he did it. Like my dad... My grandpa, they were also gentle. My dad's very gentle. I call him the gentle wind that carries me. But he it was so graceful. And but he had this way of always demanding more mm-hmm. that you wouldn't feel as aggression mm-hmm. or controlling, you know, but he he always would demand more. So things that I would be impressed by or happy about you know like even my book deal like i was i never knew i would get a book deal or be writing a book i was super excited about it i'm like hey i got a book deal with random house yeah it's a big deal and he was excited for me but not as excited as i was and it's uh-huh. because he expects it mm. it wasn't it wasn't a surprise to him yeah that this happened yeah all right there's also something extremely empowering about him just expecting that of you, right? Like, he's just like, well, I mean, yeah, you got a book deal because you're you, you write, you're brilliant. Like, th- there's there's that settledness. And so there's always this, I, I would imagine there's always this bedrock that when you start to feel doubt, you can say, I mean, but my grandpa, but daddy says I'm good. So I know that I'm good because I, I'm, oh God, this is a super punny thing. But I'm, I've got that cemented, right? I'm locked in on that. You're you're right. And it's something like my dad would teach me in those poems, like mm-hmm. some things we were so annoyed about, but he would always say, you have to plant your seed. You have to write it. You know, long before tech girls were making millions to talk about the power of intention, my dad taught me that. Mm-hmm. And he would say, where do you want to be in 10 years? And he would make me write it down. And he would say, you know, when I got older and I was starting to take on these cases and I would say, I'm going to take this case to the White House if I have to. And he would say, write it down. Come on now. Write it down to the extent of how's the weather that day? What hmm. are you wearing when you go to the White House? What type of pen will you be writing with? And it was so annoying at the time. I hear you. I'm yeah. like, I'm just saying, I'm just, I mean... But, oh, my God, that, the power of intention and manifestation that my daddy taught me, man. So so when I'm setting that intention of writing a book, yeah, he expected the book deal to come because he knew that manifestation was going to happen. Hmm. Look here. Your daddy sounds like he he's he's I picture a guy with like a crystal ball, maybe like a long beard. Why, why do you- because he sounds like a sage wizard man and why do sagacious wizards have to have long beards that's uh, why are you even asking that question you read books <laughs> you've seen the movies man, gandalf good. the great what? stop it i have not it seen a movie like the movie i have not it seen a movie, with, like a, movie. With, a, with a black 
sagacious wizards. Well, I don't have a comparison because representation matters. But he is very hip and he is, um, you know, he has his fade. He has his Tupac blasting all the time, you know, so, yeah. Defy the norms. So, so that is so good to me because, you know, there, we, we talk about um, the power of imagination. See, this is the thing that I think a lot of times people miss. Imagination, you know, they think reading Rainbow, oh, that's for kids stuff out there. The power of the ability to see and to visualize makes yourself um, powerful to step into a space and do something atypical. Why? Because I've seen it. It's not weird for me. I can see it. I've been there before. So when he said, what pen are you writing with? What does the day look like? Well, I, 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 I get even scientifically, I understand what he's doing in that space. Spiritually, yes. scientifically, it's all on the same plane. Yes. I get what he's doing. And that is so powerful because it leads to this next point. Because a lot of people go to go to law school, Brittany. Damani, did you know that a lot of people go to law school? Like, how are we defining a lot? A lot of people go to law school. Have you been to billions, law school? Billions of people I've walked in the building. That's fair. Okay. I, then I too. Okay. I too have I've gone to asked, a law school. I needed to go to the restroom one time. I, I and I was like, you know, to a law school. Yes. Left or right, which way? Second second yes. hallway to so, the left. So and I was in. A hundred percent of the people on this uh, podcast right now have been to a law school. Yes. And a lot of people do that. They get degrees. They pass the bar. But. Not everybody starts to do what you did while in law school. And that's the thing that I think is so important. And as you tell the story growing up and how your dad framed things and how your experiences with your mother, it all starts to make sense. Because as you were in law school, you came across a woman and her name is Sharonda, Sharonda Jones. Talk about that. Yeah, so here I am. In law school, you know, that's what I'm supposed to do. I have my job offer as a first-year law student for post-graduation. Mm. Wow. So I was taking up, classes that I enjoyed, and I've always just been intrigued by the criminal justice system. My dad went to college for a short while and studied criminology. Okay. So I remember being like in middle school reading these books that he would bring in from college or talking to him about it. So I've always been intrigued by the criminal justice system. So I started taking classes since I had a job lined up, you know, that line with that interest. And so I took a critical race theory course at SMU. Uh, And it's a course that analyzes the intersection between race and the law. And it was a black professor, professor Lacey. And I chose to write, about the disparity in sentencing between powder cocaine and crack cocaine. Mm-hmm. All right, now. And at the time, there was like this 100 to 1 sentencing ratio disparity. So if I had 5 grams of crack cocaine, I would get the same amount of time as someone with 500 grams of powder cocaine. Mm-hmm. Yep. So you can imagine the racially disproportionate impact this had yeah. on society. And so I had a childhood friend from East Texas named Keon Mitchell. Mm -hmm. And a couple of years before I went to law school, he had gotten life for drugs. Mm. And Keon was like the guy, you know, everybody, every 
neighborhood got that guy that's supposed to make it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, he was yeah. the guy that was supposed to make it. He was popular, charismatic. He was in college. He was like three months away from getting his own degree, ironically, in criminal justice. Mm. But he sold drugs. Mm. And it was something like growing up, we didn't think much about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? And when he got life, it just shook the community. Life? Mm. But we thought this is like rural East Texas justice, right? This is an anomaly. And so when I wrote, was writing this paper, because of that proximity I had with my mom, I wanted to humanize the paper. I wanted more than just statistics and legalese. I wanted the heartbeats. And I was going to talk about Keon. And I wanted to have a woman like is there any women serving life for drugs and i'm not kidding y'all i did a google search and i googled like woman life drugs uh-huh. and sharonda jones's story popped up wow and from there i just became obsessed with her case she's from Terrell, texas not mm. far from here she was a mother to a daughter who was eight years old at the time And at the time, she was on her 10th year of a life without parole sentence as a first-time offender. Sharonda had never even been arrested for a traffic ticket before. First time. First time. She'd never been to jail. So I'm like thinking, okay, somebody died. Like, Mm -hmm. it's got to be some bodies. Right. And I'm researching, and I'm like obsessed with this case. I'm not kidding. And there was nothing there. It was just... But this... Drugs. It was just drugs. And this concept in the federal system of conspiracy and how okay. easy it is to get entrapped in that. And that's how it was for Keon's case. Neither of their cases, drugs were never found. They were never caught selling drugs to anyone. No undercover buys, no surveillance, all co-conspirator testimony. Wait, wait, hold, hold on. Wait, wait. wait. Yes. Sorry. Hot second. Hold on. The money go. No, you, because, wait. What? Yeah. So, wait. They did not find the drugs. So it wasn't like, oh, no, they're patting Keon down. What's this little baggie we've got here? Right? That, that, that That's oh, not. You got yo. 13 grams of rock right here in your pocket. That's yo. not what we're talking about here. It, it was, was, it was I heard like from. That. I heard from Juju down the street that you sell drugs. And also uh, Bobby said the same thing. And Susan told me as well. So three people said you sell drugs. So you must sell drugs. And Juju got arrested. So Juju that, just that told me that. Reputable. And I'm going to give Juju yeah. a break for for mm. snitching. So I learned about this conspiracy law what? in the federal system. So like literally it's like two or more people just have an agreement to oh to. My God. Traffic drugs. So me and Byron can be sitting up here saying, Byron can tell me, oh, I need a kilogram of crack. I can say, okay, I know someone in Houston. And we just committed a federal crime. My gosh. And I was looking at that and I was learning about conspiracy and this whole concept in the federal system that we call ghost dope. Because it's no dope ever found. So people were testifying against Sharonda that she was a connector. She knew a guy in Houston selling drugs. She knew a family, a people in Terrell that needed drugs, and she connected them. And so she would drive a few times to take the money to get the drugs and bring them back to the 
dealers in Dallas. She was a middle woman per se. Yeah. And they were, they testified against her. The drug supplier testified against Sharonda at trial, admitting that he trafficked hundreds of kilos of powder cocaine and that Sharonda Jones bought drugs from him. And all of this testimony, these quantities is what was calculated to give them their sentence. So check this out. So Sharonda was ultimately charged with 24 kilograms of crack. Mm. No crack ever found. No drug buys. No surveillance. But the couple said that she had brought them back approximately 30 kilos of powder cocaine. Okay. That's where the number came from. So the judge said that Sharonda should have known it was reasonably foreseeable in legal terms that the couple was going to rock up the powder to crack. So there was this arbitrary DEA ratio used to convert the powder to crack. Remember I just talked about this 101 ratio. So a ratio, there was this ratio used from the DEA multiplied this 30 kilos of powder by this number to come up with the crack cocaine quantity. So I'm a, let me say let me say this. I just for our listeners, I'm a, I'm gonna say it. I'm gonna say it. I'm gonna say it the way I hear it. I hear it, and then you confirm if I am correct. There was no actual drugs that a person put their hands on that 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 Sharonda was found with. So that's the first thing. But she knew a guy, basically. Like you know, I know I know a guy and. I got a couple of people, one who might have, you know, a dog in the hunt uh, who is also facing potential charges that testified against me, all of that stuff. So there's a lot of hearsay and I know a guy. And then we get to a place where, okay, in spite of all of these mercurial kind of ephemeral things, you're guilty. Now, let's figure out how long you're going to be behind bars because you're guilty on this ghost crack, ghost powder situation. And I'm going to go even further. I'm going to apply my own conversion rate where you don't have crack. But if you were to have converted this fake amount of cocaine into crack, here's theoretically what we should be charging you with. And that ended up being the actual charge and sentence. That was what her sentence was based on. You got it all the way right. And I'm going to preface all this by saying my clients are not innocent. They sold dope. Sure, sure. Yeah. But there's no way in hell they sold the amount of dope, the amount of ghost dope they were charged with, or there's no way in hell that any quantity of dope justified a life without parole sentence. There's no parole in the federal system. Like at all. So no. No parole at all. So so keep in mind, life without parole is the second most severe penalty permitted by law in mm. America. So Sharonda was serving the same amount of time as the oh, Unabomber. My. Like what sense does that make? Sharonda was serving what now? The same amount of time as the Unabomber. Wow. Wow. 
What sense does that make? So what's that like for you, right? You're 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 starting to go down this path because you came into law school with a very clear understanding of what you wanted to do with your life, right? And then you start kind of just casually taking these courses and then all of a sudden are confronted with this reality. What is that doing to you as a would-be corporate lawyer discovering this inequity that's existing and you, that you can't fully explain? Yeah, so even as a law student, I interned for a federal judge and I would sit in these sentencing hearings for drug cases and just see this conveyor belt of black men entering the criminal justice system for years, 30 years, 40 years, life. Mm-hmm. And I would think about my mom and the two and a half mm-hmm. she served and how yeah. long that was. Yeah. And Learning more about Sharonda's case and the laws that allowed her to receive a life sentence, knowing that I was going into this profession that allowed this to happen, you know, it really showed, especially as I began representing Sharonda, I started to represent Sharonda pro bono Mm -hmm. as I graduated law school and went to work at corporate law. And it showed how lawyers are forced to work within the bounds of laws that are outside the bounds of moral consciousness. Mm. And how do we rectify that? You know, that is where true creativity and innovation comes in. And so I, I started trying to figure out how do I get her out and hitting roadblock after roadblock or a law would change but it wouldn't be made retroactive. Mm. And I didn't understand, like, because if it's wrong today, it was yeah. wrong yesterday. That's right. So so what are we doing? And then it got to the point where I realized the only option for Sharonda was executive clemency from the president of the United States of America. Now, yeah. This- which at the time was president. Barack What's that Obama. moment like for you? Like, was there like a light bulb? Was it a slow and gradual realization? Like, when you come to the point that the only way to get this woman the help that she needs is to take it all the way to the chief executive of our land. Like, what is that moment or series of moments like for you? Very overwhelming. Okay. But at the same time, very, it ain't nothing but a step Mm. for a stepper. Mm. You just got to keep stepping. And so we had to do it. Her life was on the line. Yeah. And I had started visiting Sharonda we would talk like she was like, I saw so much of myself in her. And I say, as I learned about the federal drug conspiracy laws and how easy it was to get caught up in that system. And I look back at my life and I dated a drug dealer mm-hmm. in high school and my first year of college and went through a very tumultuous time with that, you know, when yeah. looking back and things that, we didn't even think about, you know, when I can honestly say like I worked to save Sharonda's life as if it were my own because it mm. was. Come on. Wow. So you saw, I mean, you, you really did live your, your life one degree removed, right? Uh, but everywhere, everywhere, 
everywhere. That is um that's so interesting. One degree removed, then you got a degree that put you right in the middle of the degrees of um of change. And and what I what I am compelled by is going back to that story that you told about your dad and how he framed for you. Um yeah, all the way up to the White House, right? So yeah. When you had this thought, there are a lot of people, Brittany, who would have come to that realization and then be like, well, then we ain't going <laughs> to do it. It can't be done. But your daddy helped frame for you a very interesting notion, which is that I have visualized this so it could be possible. And as I have said to my man, Damani, before, uh, one of my favorite quotes is from Dumb and Dumber. So you're saying there's a chance, right? So you take that step and lo and behold, fast forward, it actually happened. How, when, when was the time along that journey did it that it went from, okay, this is my only chance, it's a long shot to, oh my God, it looks like this might happen. What moment was that for you? You know, it was the moment I got the call uh, from the pardon attorney. It There was so much work put into Sharonda's case. It took six mm, years. Wow. It was six years of work. When I filed her clemency petition, it was two years later that she was granted clemency by President Obama. And it was something that was very challenging because every hurdle we would just get turned down or rejected. And I would, I wanted everyone to know Sharonda Jones's name and her story and nobody mm. was listening. Mm. I didn't have a platform. Nobody seemed to care. And then we caught a break with the journalist from the Washington Post and she did a front page story on Sharonda wow. Jones. And that just took it to a national level. And it was, you know, my dad would say along the way, I would say, well, like, this Supreme Court case is here, but it's not retroactive. And, you know, this is another revision in the law that's happened, but it's not retroactive. And my dad would always say, don't think of the challenge, imagine mm. the possibilities. And so when I learned about, I didn't know anything about clemency. Mm-hmm. And when I learned about this tool, Ironically, through a friend of my dad's, she had gotten a life sentence. A white woman from rural East Texas Mm -hmm. had gotten caught up in a drug conspiracy with five black men. And she was 22 at the time. And she got life. And it was my dad's childhood friend. Like, I'd known her since I was born. And one day in 2001, my senior year of high school, my grandmother picked me up and I noticed someone in the front seat. So I was a little irritated because I sit in the front. <laughs> Obviously. And it was, it, yeah, and it was Deanne. And she had served, we knew she had gotten life. You know, I was young. Wow. Didn't really understand much about it. She had gotten clemency from President Clinton. Mm. And her co-defendants were still in prison when I was in law school. And when she found out I was in law school, she called me to try to help their case. Okay. Because she had like this survivor's remorse, right? And that's when the clemency light went off. 
was like Deanne mm-hmm. got clemency. Maybe Sharonda mm-hmm. can get clemency. And then, you know, we're in this time of Obama. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You know, we're in this time of blackness, of black excellence, of we can do anything. And, you know, it, it's unjust. Yeah. The responsibility and burden we place on him yeah. to change the world, you know, but it was there. Yeah. And it, he just had to be our savior. Yeah. And he was. Wow. Oh my gosh. That is such a powerful story and it connects so many dots. And while it is not the only story, it was one that I definitely wanted to make sure we illuminated because you've done many, many that that was just. Yeah. The and first. that's the thing. It's like, it's like that right there. Yeah. Like, real talk like that. I can drop yeah, you can be like, done. Yeah, what have you done with your career? Oh, nothing. No big deal. I just got a woman out of a life sentence. Oh, and by got her out of a life sentence, I mean, the president said it was that she was good. Like that's, you yeah. could stop there. That could be a part of your bio that you're done, but, but, but you didn't, you put a period, you hit a carriage return twice and started a new paragraph. And then, yeah. And that wasn't the plan. Okay. I had spent so much time on her case. I was tired and I wanted to, I, I loved my job as a corporate lawyer, you know, I loved mergers and acquisitions and I was literally helping to move billion dollar deals by day and saving lives at night. Batman I was, about to was in some losing my mind. You know, I say now when I, if I stopped to think about it, I would have just dropped all the balls, but <laughs> I kept stepping. Yeah. And so I did, when she got free, I was like, okay, this is it. I'm going to focus on my corporate career keep striving, keep opening these doors. Oftentimes I'm the only woman in the room in these meetings, the only black person. And then I got a call from Corey Jacobs, a man that was serving life without parole for drugs his 16th year. And I said, no, I wasn't going to take any more cases. You know, I was tired. And Sharonda said, Brittany, at least talk to him. She said, I've been there. And even if you don't take his case, just the fact that you listened will make a difference. And I listened and there was no way I was not going to take his case. And I took his case and realized I don't have six years with Corey Mm -hmm. like I had with Sharonda. I have 10 months before President Obama leaves office. Mm -hmm. I want to help get as many people free as I can. And I made a decision, you know to resign from corporate law at that time to follow my passion to transform the system to free Corey Jacobs and free as many people as I can. And, and gracefully again, president Barack Obama granted clemency to Corey Jacobs one year after Sharonda and Corey Jacobs and Sharonda Jones and I co-founded the buried alive project. Mm, And that's the organization that we work with now to free people pro bono, who are serving life sentences for drugs in federal prison. And we work to end the policies that put them there. 
You know what? What's interesting? How old were you at the time that you got the call from Corey Jacobs? That was in 2016. I was born in 84, 32. 32. 32 years old. That, she ain't even she was like, ah, you took yet. my damn joke, Byron. That's where I got it, boy. That's it out of my nigga. <laughs> I don't know if I can say oh, damn it about so, Jesus, though. That's, that's not right. You can. You can say, you know, damn them to hell, all of them demons and whatnot. <laughs> that's exactly no. what it is. No. Yeah. So... So, so Brittany, you know, it's, it's funny, you know, a lot of people are speed dating at that point in their life. You out here speed saving. <laughs> like he, she's, she's like, she's like, let me hurry up and save this man's life, <laughs> um, which is so powerful. Um, so many lessons come through here in, in the power that you illuminated. The thing that I want our listeners to make sure they don't miss Please, y'all, if you get anything, get a pencil and a pad, write down. Imagination is not soft. Imagination powers real change. It powers um, society. It literally saves Well, you know what it reminds me of, Byron, is actually uh, the episode with Mercedes, because uh, Mercedes um, references uh, Octavia Butler and... She says that social justice work is like science fiction because you are imagining a world that does not yet exist. And I, and I, and, and, and Brittany, not only are you, your dad taught you how to imagine this world that didn't exist, this world where you're walking into the white house and holding the specific pen and wearing the specific suit dress, whatever. Um, so you didn't just imagine the world because you imagined the world when you were with like much younger, you created the beginnings of, of this world. So my, one of my questions, were you, when you, were you using the pen that you said you were going to use? Were you, were you in the outfit that you said that you were going to wear? Like how much of that came true? You know, I never took that step that my dad pushed me to about the pen and the outfit, but I did about the weather and it was going to be a sunny day and it was a sunny day in December Mm. and the call, it was the only way to describe it Mm. is the call, the call. And it had gotten really tough there at the end for Sharonda her case, I could go on and on about. I talk about it a lot in the book. You guys will see her whole family went to prison. Her mom, her sister, yeah. her brother. Her mom was paraplegic, mm-hmm. paralyzed from the neck down. And she served 12 years in prison with her mom. And her mom passed away in prison. Yeah. And then her daughter, who's 24 by now, mm-hmm. got pregnant. And that just broke her down. Sharonda was like, I just have to be there. And when we got the call, her daughter was due in May. And we got the call that December before. And I remember telling Sharonda, you're going home. And she said, thank you, Brittany. Thank you, Jesus. And then she kept saying, I'll get to be there for the baby. Mm. I'll get to be Mm. there for the baby. And it just all shows how life our lives are always evolving in perfect alignment. Yeah. Yeah. Always. A, Even when is, we can't see it. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. It closes the loop. 
the uh <laughs> the moral arc of the universe is long but it bends towards justice and you know i just i do i just have to believe that it connects and it feels like in this story uh in this story this snap micro moment it does and it wouldn't have happened though without um you listening and being open to uh to to kind of answering that call and and i just want to say you know i'm you probably hear this a lot but um for whatever it's worth um your the your story uh i know (laughs) that there's no way to communicate and to come get across just how much work went into everything that you did over the course of these multiple years. But what I hear in it is, is, is not that it's not about you. It's not about the time. It's not about the hours, not about how hard you worked and how smart you were and how, how um, deftly you wove between the lines and the policies and all it's about those people. And, and it's about, the heart and the humanity in it all. And I, and the, to know that you're grounded and rooted in that. Um, I too am not surprised mm. that you have done what you have done and are continuing to do. Cause you, you, this, this work has been recognized like internationally, right? You, you, you from good morning America to essence magazine, I, you, the, the work that you, and the track and the trajectory that, that work has put you on um, has been recognized. Has that helped? How has that helped to continue the story that you've been 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 immersed in for so long? You know, it has really helped to shine a light mm-hmm. on the injustice. One of the things that would get me with Sharonda when I would talk about her case when she was in prison is how few people even realize that you could get life in prison yeah. for drugs. People just I don't I did, know. I didn't know. And so, yeah, life without parole. I, and so I, I thought being you had able to have bodies. To, I thought you actually had to have the multiple. Well, no, I, th- I thought I thought you had to have at least three strikes. I, I like I thought that's or how, like, that's or how like El Chapo. Right. Yeah. Yeah, right. I would think El Chapo, Pablo, you know. Good to see that, right? And so, <laughs> yeah, and I'm, I'm, I grew up in East Texas. I knew Keon wasn't an El Chapo, you know. And so, right. You know, so it was, it was looking at it like that. But then just to, to have, after so many years of hard work mm-hmm. and not being heard, to have a platform now where people are listening or paying attention being intentional about solutions is it's heartening and it continues to help propel me in that sense of hope. Um, The hope that I truly Mm. get from the people. Beautiful. Well, listen, um, I I, I think you have blessed our listeners here today. You have certainly blessed Got my notebook and my pen right here. Uh, I got the book in my my cart right now. Um, so I'm excited because I'm I'm even more excited than when I put the book in my cart, um, because yeah. now I've heard the person. <laughs> and let's be let's be clear, um, you are signing my book when we're allowed to see each other in person. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I will I will sign your book when we're allowed to. I promise you that. Yeah. And you know, I just 
I, it's it's a, my life's journey. Mm-hmm. My heart and soul is poured on every single page, every single sentence, every single word. Beautiful. And my goal for that book was to be as pure and authentic as possible and to really humanize this issue. Come on now. Well, um, madam, um, if the book is anything like what you done told, told it true today, then yeah, yeah. I think mission accomplished. Okay. Mission accomplished. And so, like I said, we are so grateful for your time here. And now we have come to a very special part of uh, casually creative. It's a part that we all know and love. And it's, it's a segment uh, that, that, brings out the best in in every single guest that we have here okay um, it's intense it's 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 a little bit of a hot seat but trust me you'll be better for it we all are it's called <laughs> quickly creative this is in the style of the cosby show Ba-da-da-da-da. quickly creative Ba-da-da-da-da. quickly creative all right thank you Devani. thank you Devani. We are so happy for that that inspired, inspired. Uh, rendition. I was just I felt so, I was channeling some Southern roots, some Justine, Justine. I was bringing the whole thing together right there. You did, you did. <laughs> uh, as many of our listeners, or maybe a first time listeners, know we ain't got a theme song for this part of the uh, uh, show, so we make it every up every ticket. time. That that was this was the <laughs> version. All right, so what happens is I'm gonna throw some questions at you, rapid fire, and you give me your very first response the thing that's off the dome that comes from your heart that you almost hiccup out like that's what it's gonna be okay are you ready Brittany let's go okay here we go here we go here we go grits sugar or butter butter rice sugar or butter (laughs) sugar cornbread sugar (laughs) or butter sugar Kirk Franklin or Fred Hammond? Oh. Mm-hmm. oh. Come on, Byron. I know I did it. That you got to pick oh. one. Kirk Franklin. Is that just because he's from Texas? Oh, I'm going to tell Fred. Oh. I'm going to tell That's it. so wrong. I'm tell it. I know. I understand. Have you ever rode a horse? Yes. How often? Very often. I'm from rural East Texas. There we go. That's what I was trying to get at. Okay, cool. Uh, favorite <laughs> farm animal? Horses. Actually, I was I was gonna go I was gonna go chickens. I don't know why. I, I'm not I, why, I, 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 was, I wasn't. I was thinking chickens. Okay, they, they are, are so loud. They really, they really are. They really are. All right. <clears throat> Red dirt or pine trees? Your favorite part of uh, East Texas terrain? Pine trees. You want her to change her mind? No, no. Is it red dirt or pine trees? Pine trees. Okay. Wait, have you been to East Texas, uh, Damani? I used to, have I you used been to live there? in Edom, Texas. Okay, cool. Wait, I know about West Texas. What? I don't know about no Edom, Texas. Edom is... Yeah, really? Edom is... Uh, if you go on 20... No, I, I'm yeah. familiar. I didn't know you oh, lived yeah. out I lived there. in Edom, Texas for... For about oh, yeah. uh, six months, uh, there was a population of 322 and an African-American population of one. Uh, and <laughs> if I if I had stayed out there, I was legit going to like join the fire, de- the volunteer fire department. I was going to do the thing. Uh, yeah. I didn't. I, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't. 
Okay. Was that the, was that no. the end of Quickly Creative, or did we just like? Oh no, no, we got one more. We got one more. We got one more. We got one more. Okay. All right. <laughs> I need your favorite queen uh, entertainer right now. Beyonce. All right. I just made that easy. Some people could have gone Cardi though, because because she's she's on fire right now. But you're okay. right, Beyonce. I guess she's not from Texas. Come on, with it. No- That's why she chose Kirk. <laughs> Texas up in this thing. Come on, come through, come through. Well, listen, Brittany, we, I cannot, I cannot overemphasize how grateful Thank we you. are for you coming on to the show, blessing us with your truth, with your greatness, with your spirit and your brilliance. Um, this is the part where you brag on yourself. And I mean, like, you know, Just, you could do this for a whole nother episode, but, but why don't you, you <laughs> that you want to want to tell the people about it, if there's any place that you want to go, Want to have them go check out? You know what's up? Where, where, you, yeah, where, you, where are your books you. sold? Where's the book sold? All that. All that. Yeah, please get your copy of A Knock at Midnight, A Story of Hope, Justice, and Freedom. I talk about my life's work and my story with Sharonda. Follow the work on Instagram at Buried Alive Project and see the people that we are freeing, the lives that we are saving. My co-counsel and I have saved over 50 lives of people who survived over 1,000 years. And with every freedom we secure, we are pushing forward a movement, a liberation movement of people who are going to positively impact everyone around them. And that's how you create systemic change. My God. Brittany K. Barnett, everybody. I, I ain't even got wanna, nothing else to say. Organ. Thank you so much. Organ in there. Yeah, I know, right? We need one. Dang. Learn how to play the organ, Demond. Nah. Yeah, we need that southern uh, wood floorboard at the church That's breaking. Right. <laughs> organ. That's right. a, like a Martin Luther King fan. That, that's yeah. You know that did you know not pull you down at all. You were no never you were no cooler stick. waving that fan than if you weren't waving that fan with the wood stick. No, with the little popsicle stick joint on there. Oh, yes. <laughs> All right, y'all. Thank you so much for tuning in. Check us out, casuallycreative.co. Uh, you can listen to our episodes there or everywhere else you listen to your episodes of podcasts. Um, this is your man, Byron Sanders. So grateful to you guys. And we also got uh, other man's. Damani Daniel. Thank you guys for joining. We love you guys a whole bunch. Y'all stay dope. Stay dope. Casually Creative was produced by Heather Daniel of SweetRebel.com. Its intro and outro music were composed by Ezekiel Daniel and produced by Marcus Reddick and Dean Talbert. Feel free to check us out online at www.casuallycreative.co. Everyone living is a type of creative. Everyone's got a limit they can create. Some people code them for some people mistaken. If you can see it in your mind, you can make it.